Well, hello, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I have on the line the esteemed Kevin Soling, the director of a powerful, must-see new documentary, a documentary entitled The War on Kids. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Uh, and um, I just wanted to, first of all, thank you for lifting the lid off a truly nasty cauldron uh, in terms of the dehumanization uh, control and drugging of uh, of children. I I can't help but look at certain moral quagmires that we inhabit as a society today, and I sort of shudder to think what the judgment of the future will be. Like we look back on things like slavery, and we say, "Good God, how could people have ever believed that? How could that ever have occurred within a society?" Well, of course, to the people in those societies throughout history where where slavery existed. It seemed purely commonplace. It was just the way of the world. There were beasts of burden and the same thing with women's rights and the same things with the rights of minorities and so on. I just can't help but in the future, they're just going to be kind of dumbfounded as to how we could allow this despoilation of the most precious resources that we have. And it's a cliche that we say as a society that children are our most precious resource. And I believe that it's true. But Lord above, we really can't seem to get our act together to treat them with the humanity and dignity that they so truly deserve. And uh, I just wanted to give you my thanks for putting the film out there and really strongly, strongly urge listeners and interested parties to uh, to order it. It's uh, it's a really, really powerful work. And, and thank you so much for taking the time to put it together. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate those words. It's funny because I've actually used a, a lot of those, those same analogies and thought, you know, about the same thing as far as perspective-wise uh, in, in terms of, uh, you know, the optimistic view of the future that, you know, someday uh, there's an enlightened generation that can look back. Oh, they'll be they'll be simply astonished. And th- I think what, what will make them the most astonished is the the degree of, of difference between our sentiments and our actions. I mean, at least in slavery's, uh, slavery-based societies, they didn't say slaves are fully human and we should treat them with dignity and respect. They said they're beasts of burden, they're animals, they're heathen or whatever. But we have this rhetoric around children and childhood that is so fundamentally at odds with how we act that I, I think it's going to be mind-blowing to people in the future because it's not like we don't know how to treat children well. Everybody has, you know, the hallmark uh, commercials playing in their heads and hugs and kisses and respect and so on. But when we translate that into a kind of social action, it just seems seems kind of chilling. And so I'd like to start, if we could, there's, there's a common myth. Uh, I don't particularly believe it, and it doesn't sound like you do as well. And it is the myth that seems to occur with all kinds of collective action that, okay, it's shit now, but boy, back in the day, it was golden. There was a golden age of, uh, of public school. And in the movie, you don't touch much upon the history of the public school system for you know, reasons that, that make perfect sense to me. But in uh, the interview you had on um, the Colbert Report, you talked about the, the Prussian style uh, influence on the original uh, foundation, I guess, in the mid-19th century of the public school system. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit to sort of help people to dispel this idea of the golden age when, you know, kids were orderly and were attentive and the worst problems you had were gum-chewing and running in the hallways and we produced all of these great citizens, because it doesn't really seem to be true when you dig into the actual history of the public school system. 
Oh, yeah, that's absolutely uh, correct. Um, you know, nostalgia is uh, one of the greatest distorting lenses uh, in terms of uh, trying to, to analyze uh, things. Uh, yeah, school system originally, uh, first off, it, it's actually a very recent invention, and that's something, you know, a few people can appreciate or realize. Uh, most people think, oh, we always had schooling, but it, it only was introduced uh, in, in America in the 1850s, and the first state to to bring that to introduce that was Massachusetts, and 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 not without uh, a great deal of of resistance, and and police had to be brought in. Uh, people didn't want to uh, surrender their children voluntarily to some, uh, you know, to have a bunch of strangers indoctrinate them, and uh, it, it was it, it was not easy going. Uh, eventually, uh, you know, with the the, the decrease in, in states' rights, um, you know, the, the model became more prevalent, but it actually was a, a military model. Uh, and, and you still see, you know, those elements. The, the concept was you have uh, a number of uh, children uh, sitting in a, in a cold, sterile room, you know, isolated from, from their communities, from their families, from their culture, who uh, are presented in front of an authoritarian figure, and they're uh, made to take orders in a docile uh, manner. And, and that aspect hasn't changed, and those are still the, the core key elements that, that persist today. What happened then uh, later was during the Industrial Revolution, uh, the factory model was uh, added, and uh, you still have elements of the military model, but it became adapted so that people would uh, learn to, to be able to endure the tedium and boredom of working in a factory. And in fact, when Henry Ford uh, first tried to get laborers uh, for, uh, you know, for, for his, uh, you know, for his factories, I think he had to hire about eight times as many. I think it was 800 for every 100 that would stay for any length of time because uh, it just was something that uh, that people just couldn't endure. They weren't prepared for, for that kind of repetition and boredom. And uh, so, so schools were then um, adapted uh, to create people uh, who who could work in the factories, and and you have you know the bells ringing in the classrooms, and and this this whole notion of of dependency and and tedium of uh, of labor that that ultimately amounts to to very very little. Um, and after that, as as you see, you know, as we witness today, uh, most people, you know, can adjust to to factory life. Now, what what's taken place is uh, you have uh, this increase in security, and uh, you know, one could cynically make comments about the fact that the United States has over two million uh, people in prison, and that we're uh, basically training people to endure prison life. And, uh, you know, there certainly is, uh, yeah, there are many elements of, of school that, that uh, are, are remarkably similar to, to you know, to the conditions in prison, and in some cases, obviously better, in some cases, uh, in fact, worse. Uh, prisoners have some degree of civil rights, which uh, children uh, don't have. There is a prevailing philosophy that uh, in public education that civil rights are incompatible uh, for some reason with with getting an education, and that's been upheld repeatedly uh, by the, the Supreme Court. Um, Clarence Thomas, if you ever read his uh, his uh, his readings, he doesn't believe uh, you know kids should have uh, any uh, expectation of rights, to, of First Amendment rights whatsoever. Um, some recent rulings, uh, so it's, it's all very disturbing. But uh, not only were schools not better in terms of the environment in the past, but also there have been studies showing that people weren't coming out of uh, schools any better educated in the past than they are today. That uh, uh, the quality of uh, of work that was done 
was uh, you know it wasn't you know it wasn't superior to to what kids are producing today. Right. Uh, it, it has struck me, though. I think it would be a very difficult thing to prove, of course, that the general de-religiousizing, if I can invent a word, the de-theologizing of education that occurred throughout the uh, Renaissance and particularly into the Enlightenment produced the sort of completely aberrant 19th century of relative peace for Western Europe. And then once between 1850 and 1875, you get a generation or two coming out of those schools. Once more, you have uh, the indoctrination that previously was achieved by uh, the church was now achieved by the state. And then you get good cannon fodder for World War I again, because it sort of struck me that people didn't really want to go to war when schools were privatized. But then a generation or two after schools get get uh, turned over to the state, you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people willing to sign up for the most ludicrous wars that can be imagined. Again, I mean, it's not a thesis that's easy to prove, but it's something that did sort of uh, strike me is that really aberrant century was the century where there was not uh, much influence in religion or in um, in statism into the education and just gives a sense of how much could be shaped by this kind of ideology. Well, there's this one education uh, uh, critic, uh, John Taylor Dada, who's, who's fairly well known, and he, he, he likens uh, public schools to religion and points out that uh, teachers uh, like uh, priests and, and rabbis are uh, excluded from uh, malpractice lawsuits. <laughs> right. <laughs> goes on to, to explain, you know, show further about how, how school is a kind of religion in and of itself. Yeah, I gave a speech at a Liberty Forum in New Hampshire in March, and he was uh, a speaker ahead of me, and uh, I found his... Uh uh, his words to be, uh, well, I mean, they're very powerful and he has very, very, I mean, the, the challenge is solutions, right? And, and we can sort of get into that a little bit later. But um, I'm sure you've been asked this before, and I'm sorry for such an obvious question, but um, what was the genesis of this kind of project? Because, I mean, it's a monstrous project that you undertook. Uh, and, uh, I mean, the people that you interview that find the traveling, the editing, the music, the compilation, I mean, it's a huge, huge job. And clearly it's a labor of love because very few of us can retire on documentary incomes. But um, what was the genesis and propulsion? What, what kept you going through this, uh, this ordeal? Well, it, it took me seven years uh, to, to make this film, sure. and uh, I, I guess you know certainly the idea was there longer in some capacity. Um, I, I, you know, I, I found growing up to be a very uh, humiliating uh, experience. Uh, you know, children have have no sense of of dignity, and I, I never uh, or afforded none, and I. I, I just didn't let go of 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 that, and I, I think I was I was told when I was uh, young that you know once I was older and I was either no longer in school or no longer subjected to uh, that kind of oppression, you know, that I would let go of 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 that, and, and I think that probably fueled me um, even more so to to make sure that I that I maintained that drive to. Uh, to to fight for the civil rights of 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 youth, which you know it's it's kids are, are just horrifically and unfairly treated. They're they're held to uh, much higher expectations than adults hold their own to you know hold themselves to. Uh, they're they're expected to abstain from all sorts of behavior that you know certainly uh, adults uh, indulge in. And the punishments that they're subjected to are are actually much greater. There was a study showing that. Uh, for when a uh, someone under the age of 18 uh, is uh, punished for an offense and tried as an adult, that uh, the time that they're given is is uh, on average much longer, you know, or significantly wow. longer. 
than, than an adult. So, so there is there's this cultural vindictive uh, uh, vindictiveness and uh, re- repression of, of kids. I think pretty much every community has on their books uh, some form of curfew law. Uh, and in most, you know, it, it's not necessarily enforced, but but it, it can be, and and sometimes uh, it certainly is. Uh, the problems with uh, society, uh, you know, that 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 we believe, you know, per, are, are pervasive. Uh, issues like uh, drug abuse and uh, you know, you know, issues with uh, drunk driving, all sorts of these things we 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 uh, we blame kids for. And there is this this whole uh, you know scapegoating approach. But if you look at the actual numbers, uh, they they don't even remotely bear themselves out. And yet, you know, drug abuse is only considered to be you know a, a, a you know, youth issue. It's not, you know, no one, no one thinks of it outside. Even teen pregnancy uh, is something that uh, the, the, usually it's someone over the age of 18 who was involved. So it's not even, you know, you, you know the, the whole discussion of all these different issues that we blame kids for the deterioration and degradation of society are, are uh, you know, just uh, ill-directed. So I, um, you know, someone needed to to, to stand up and 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 fight uh, for you know these these civil rights abuses, and that uh, it was certainly something that was always on my mind. And uh, you know, I didn't know exactly what medium it would take uh, you know take shape in, but film became uh, certainly the, the most obvious and uh, uh, best way to you know distribute that. Uh, uh, that message, uh, but I, I really saw things getting worse with zero tolerance and the drugging of kids. I, so it, it was it was those uh, aspects where it, I just thought things had just entered a whole another realm of uh, uh, you know forced coercion that was really disturbing. And and actually there was there was one other uh, thing, and it was. Uh, um, that that came along with the drugging with this whole pathologizing of. Uh, youth culture. Uh, normal childhood behavior was treated as a pathology now, or is now. Uh, you had mentioned the issue of, of uh, slaves, and one of the things that uh, um, there was a doctor, Samuel Cartwright, I think, I, I might be getting his name wrong, but he had this condition called uh, drapetomania, which was this mental disorder that uh, slaves would have that caused them to, to want to run away. <laughs> and, and the best you know, m- means of treating something like that uh, was was to basically beat them was to, to whip them and that was you know how you you'd cure them of this this strange mental disorder that that some of them would have well we now have uh, conditions like uh, oppositional defiance disorder which is right. a condition where where kids who who don't uh, uh, submit to 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 authority uh, are are considered to have some you know mental uh, problem and and you know the result of, you know that that always happens in these cases is you know there's there's some kind of drug that's that's given to make them uh, you know docile and, and take orders and accept whatever oppressive conditions that we subject them to. Yeah, and of course the another precedent which I'm sure you're aware of is um, throughout the Middle Ages through to the late 19th century, the condition of hysteria was considered to be a biological problem to do with the female reproductive organs when of course it was women who'd experienced you know rape and abuse and and the general restrictions of rights that was the women's lot throughout most of history had pathological symptoms and of course it was blamed on a biological ailment when it really was a, um, a any natural living organism's response to to stress and brutality and uh, they tried they always tried to make it an organic disease because they don't they don't have to look at the environmental causes then which I think is really tragic 
Yeah, it's always looking at the symptoms rather than the underlying conditions. And the underlying conditions of, of school uh, is, is that you have kids you know, forcibly uh, required to be in an oppressive environment where they have no say and no rights. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this is not a thesis that's in your film. And I just say that so that people don't think that you're thinking anything this nutty. But, um, you know, one of the things that I've sort of noticed uh, is that uh, the more irrational a culture is, the more problem it has with children, because children are naturally empirical and rational. Uh, at least that's been my experience. I used to work in a daycare and I've had nieces and now I'm a father. Uh, children are incredibly rational and empirical, like the example being that if you give a kid an empty box for Christmas and say there's an imaginary iPod in there, they won't believe you. <laughs> They'll just be upset and, you know, they won't play any postmodernist games with you. But the, the more irrational the culture is, the more problem it has with children, because children are openly bewildered and prior to being cowed by the application of power, they reflect back to us the irrationalities of our culture, particularly religiosity and patriotism and some of the class structures that we have. Children are bewildered by the craziness, the crazy aspects of our culture. And that makes us feel really bad and makes us feel like they're attacking us. And of course, hierarchical power is, is based upon a fundamental irrationality that some people are automatically better and wiser if we give them uh, laws and, and courts and prisons to inflict their will on people. Children fundamentally don't get hierarchy. They don't get power. Power. They don't get religion, they don't get culture, and they sure don't get patriotism. And that their skepticism, I think it for those who are in power, it really chips away at the the moral basis for that power. And it's just one of the reasons why I think there is this escalating war on kids, that the more power you get, uh, the more kids are skeptical of it, and therefore the more power you need to, to cow and control them. That's, that's a fascinating uh, argument. My, my the operating, I guess, thesis is is something that I, you know I thought I'd come up with independently, and then discovered that Margaret Mead had had proposed it many years before. But uh, the, the thing that I noticed was that uh, the ever since the Industrial Revolution, children for the first time had developed their own culture that was independent of their parents' culture. And uh, people are uh, instinctively just possessive of their culture. And when they see kids with uh, different literature, uh, different music, different clothing, uh, there is this resentment and there is this desire to control them, to sustain and, and uh, maintain the culture of, of their parents. Um, and historically, uh, that's been seen in terms of uh, most people aren't, aren't aware that there was a, a vicious attack on, on comic books and that resulted in Senate hearings and uh, ultimately uh, the, the comic book industry had to oversee themselves you know, in order to avoid censorship and half the industry went bankrupt within, within a few years. Um, so Sorry, have, when did that occur? Uh, that was in, right before the McCarthy hearings. That was the late 40s, right after uh, uh, World War II. Um, there was this one psychiatrist that did this uh, study where uh, he, he kind of led the, uh, the charge. He noticed that uh, all these kids who were juvenile delinquents all read comic books, and, and so he came to the conclusion that uh, the comic books were responsible and uh, didn't bother examining the fact that all kids read comic books. Uh, so, but it, it actually resulted in, in, in Senate hearings. And... Uh, um, uh, it was, was, but it was cool. I mean, maybe the psychiatrist knew, and he just hated comic books for that same instinctual reason that that it was something foreign and and uh, you know chewed away at the fabric of the world that that you know that he knew and appreciated. 
but then you have, you know, the 1950s, the attack on rock and roll was the same thing, you know, you have your own form of music, uh, and, and you see that up, up and through, uh, you know, uh, today. Uh, and any type of, uh, you know, heavy metal music was blamed for, you know, suicide and, and murder and all, all sorts of things. Uh, so, you know, any, any, anything that, that's foreign, that's, you know, part of youth culture, which is, you know, that this, you know, subsequent generation is, is considered a threat. Um, and I think the baby boomer generation is one that was uh, just uh, something uh, about that, the zeitgeist uh, and, and the psyche of that generation is just one that's particularly egotistical. And uh, I, I think their methods of attacking anything foreign are, are just more severe than, than anything seen in the past. And I think that's why, you know, the, the, the lengths they've gone to to protect and preserve uh, the image of themselves has been uh, addressed and focused at, at children who are presenting something different. Right, right. No, I think, I think, that's, a, I think that's a damn good thesis too. There is, uh, I think, also an, an interesting and, and kind of chilling aspect to, uh, to, to the war on kids, which is that in any situation where you have a number of, of fixed numbers, so to speak, there is one variable that always has to change. And I was really struck in watching your documentary, the degree to which the adults, even the virtuous adults, the good teachers, the, the good educators, the good, the good theoreticians, they felt completely helpless to, to change the system. Like I didn't see any particular next steps. And that, then of course, I mean, I know that would be a lot to put in a documentary, but and we can talk about that if you like, but it sort of struck me like if, if you or I ended up being a teacher in one of these schools, well, what could we do? Well, we couldn't get the bad teachers fired. We couldn't uh, appeal to the market forces because of course, parents are forced to pay for these monstrous institutions, whether they like it or not uh, through taxes. So there's no consumer influence to, to cause things to change. And so because there's, you know, and, and of course, if the schools don't teach the right things, then they lose their funding and people uh, who are higher up who can be fired because they're not part of the union do get fired. Any principal who tries to fire a teacher is going to wind up for spending two years of a part-time job dealing with grievances and, and, and legal motions and so on. And so in a sense, there's so much that's rigid and enforced and controlled from very distant entities and through the power of coercive taxation that in a very real sense, the only variable that can be changed, you know, brutally, biochemically, authoritatively is the children because they're the only uh, variables that can be changed easily. They're not unionized. They don't vote. They don't have the rights. They, they, the parents are helpless. And I, I think that's really the great tragedy of these very strict and rigid and really at, at the very essence enforced systems is that it is the weakest in the element who always ends up bearing the burden. And in this case, that is the kids. They, they are forced to pay for the inflexibilities of the system. Yeah, well, you touched on a, on a few issues there. One is um, I tried not to um, Im impose blame on anyone. I tried not to blame, you know, the the teachers, the parents, the administrators, and I, I really tried in the film, you know, as best as I could to to look at them sympathetically and sure. um, and and tried to convey that that they're just um, you know victims to to a corrupt system, this uh, this institution that's. Uh, inhibiting their their actions, and you know, yeah, the higher up you get, uh, you know, the more you people you have to answer to, and the harder it is to do anything. Um, 
And uh, so, so that that is definitely one problem. There's one teacher who I, you know, I'd spoken to in Oregon, who's in the film, and I, and I, I you know, he was just painting such a, a profoundly dismal um, picture of, of schools where where he was, you know, helpless, you know, and and participating in this. And I, I asked him with with your understanding of how do you sleep at night, <laughs> you know, knowing that you're part of this institution. And he said he just kind of sees his uh, his position and you know, kind of the way doctors have the Hippocratic oath, and he just you know, tries to do as little harm as possible, but eventually his conscience really got to him and he, and he, and he quit and he, you know, started his own, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of a day school, preschool, uh, environment now where, where kids are, you know, integrated in, into society as best as, you know, as the law would permit, um, but it's a, he's much happier and, uh, so he's, he's doing good now. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't look at any particular individual to blame. Uh, it's sort of like saying who, who's responsible for the economic disasters of the Soviet Union. Well, there's no evil bureaucrat who's sending all the food to the wrong place. It's just there's an entire system that simply can't work and individuals are trapped in it. But I think there's a fallacy that, you know, if we had better teachers, you know, that everything would be better, you know, if the right. teachers cared and the teachers got the kids engaged. And, and there's, you know, there, there, are, there have been, you know, a number of super teachers out there who, you know, who have been successful in getting the test scores up. And, and, and that's kind of, you know, the ideal that's presented, but that, that doesn't do it. And, and people don't, you know, do, you know, can't really comprehend that. And certainly not the teachers that, that think they're helping don't understand um, that, uh, you know, if you look at what what is the ideal, if, if people were tried to say, well, if we had you know unlimited funding and we had the best <laughs> teachers, you know, what would schools look like? Well, you know, you st- they're still going to have a rigid curriculum, and you know, the, the best school is one that where the kids are are the most docile and coerced, you know, easily coerced, and, and are willing to go about you know their, their daily existence without ever uh, expressing their own interests or opinions, because you know those are more likely than not going to be outside the curriculum. <laughs> Right. I mean, and that, that's the crazy thing. Um, you know, you see these movies, uh, Dangerous Minds, and, and there was one about the math teacher. I can't remember. Ed, Edward James almost played him. Stand and Deliver. And, and you see these movies about these, you know, wonderful, inspirational teachers in the inner city. And people take some comfort in that. But to me, that's completely insane. I mean, why would you need to make a movie about something that's common? You know, you don't see movies like, here's a really great Walmart greeter. You know, he's, he's the only great Walmart. He's so rare that we had to make a feature film out of him to, to, to tell his story and it's because those are pretty common but if these teachers were common there never would be movies about them it's because they're such rare exceptions and of course um, that that math teacher the the one in stand and deliver in in the real world uh, ended up being forced out of the out of the profession because uh, he was you know wanted to to change the way that things worked based on empirical results based studies and um, he, you know he ran right up against the brick wall of the bureaucracy and they hit the eject button pretty quickly so those movies have a sort of a really sad ending Almost all of them either get forced out or they, they, they go on the lecture circuit or write books. You know, none, none of the, the teachers of the year, or very few, you know, ever stay in teaching. They, uh, you know, they get out. But I, I don't really think the super teachers, I, I think in some ways, you know, I, I just call them super teachers. That's kind of <laughs> the terminology I've been using. I, I, I think that they're kind of uh, more destructive because they get people to, to buy into the system and they actually are, 
are good at, at, at creating conformity uh, right. in terms of, uh, you know, how the classrooms operate. Yes, you know, they, they're, they're good at getting test scores up and, and, and the, you know, the kids' uh, achievement in terms of reading and writing is superior to other classrooms. But, you know, how does it compare to, you know, to, to self-directed or, or, you know, other methods? It's not... Um, oh, right. Yeah, so you're comparing it, 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 those it, it, those teachers to the rest of the public school system versus um, free range schooling or homeschooling or other kinds of self-directed schooling. So you're kind of comparing, you know, a bad crop to a worse crop in a sense. Yeah, precisely. Right, right. OK, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I have to ask one question. Uh, well, not just one, but there's a, a, a scene. I mean, a, a lot of the scenes I found hard, hard to watch. I mean, especially of the kids and, and seeing the despair, you know, etched, you know, like with this Kafkaesque gray charcoal on the faces of the children talking about their school environments. And it really, really takes me back to all of the cynicism and uh, um, hatred that I and my friends had when we were in school as well. Just the idea that it was a ridiculous gulag, that you had to follow these ridiculous step, dance steps for no particular purpose. But there was a scene, and, and you put it right at the end of the film, which I thought was great. And oh my God, I found it oh, so hard to watch emotionally. Um, uh, I, was, I was really tempted to turn away. And that's a scene where the black girl was um, being uh, arrested. Yeah. yeah, tell me a little bit about that because oh man, that was just yeah. that was an unbearable thing to watch. The way that she burst into tears is oh yeah, it was a six-year-old girl and she had thrown a bunch of books around the room and was just you know having a temper tantrum in class and was unruly and the teacher tried to uh, restrain her and while the teacher tried to restrain her, you know, she was struggling and 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 kicked the teacher and uh, you know through through the struggling process and then uh, was was you know, placed in, in, a, in, a, in a room where she calmed down, where she's seen and the police were called in. Yeah. Uh, that was um, just, that was only one instance where I was, you know, where, where, where the handcuffing uh, of, of, a, of, of a child was on camera. Um, so unfortunately, there, there are a number of other instances uh, where this has occurred. And one of the, the things I, I told, you know, uh, one of my friends in, in women's studies is for some reason, and, and I don't know, I haven't uh, investigated this on my own, but just as far as all, all the news stories, so it could just be anecdotal, but it seems that uh, uh, all the cases where children have been handcuffed who are under the age of nine, they all seem to have been girls. And I, I don't know what to make of that, and I'm not sure if that's true or not. But but I, I've read of, of other instances of a seven-year-old who who stole two dollars from from a classroom, and you know the police came to the house and took her away in handcuffs, and and a number of other things that were you know just just you know minor offenses uh, or or non-offenses uh, where where kids are taken away in handcuffs, and it's just because uh, you have uh, resource officers, you have police officers in school now, so you have. You know, all these, you know, these, these little pushing and shoving or, or, you know, you know, even more insignificant uh, issues that just naturally take place in a, in a school environment because it's a prison-like environment and kids are powerless and the only way they can exercise any degree of power is, is against one another. Uh, you know, so you have these, these situations and now they're, they're, they're dealt with by the police. Uh, and you know, you have uh, this, this kind of culture also where, where people are just much more alienated from one another. And uh, the, the, the response is, you know, that get tough on kids. We need to, you know, really teach them a lesson. One of the things that I didn't cover, for instance, in that Goose Creek, uh, South Carolina raid where the principal at the school had suspected that there was drug use going on in the school that kids were oh were, yeah where they had the 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 dogs and the SWAT teams in the hallway and the kids all piled up in the corners oh yeah that was a surreal 
Yeah, one of the things that, that I didn't uh, uh, get to introduce, you know, unfortunately, in, in, in the film about that raid, for, for example, is that the community, by and large, came out in support of the principal. And uh, I tried to get some, some interviews with some people uh, on camera who were, you know, they, they actually marched in front of the school. And it was, it was a, a much, much smaller group that was protesting uh, the raid than the ones that came out in support of the raid. They felt that, yes, even though none of the kids had drugs, the kids need to understand, you know, the potential danger of drugs and what could happen if they get involved with drugs. And, and they supported uh, the use of police force, uh, massive police force with, you know, guns pointed at the kids. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they, the police tried to uh, defend uh, the uh, uh, you know the guns by saying, "Oh, the guns were all pointed down." You know, they had their guns down. You know, <laughs> but yeah, the kids were lying. They were kids were forced to lie on the ground. So when the <laughs> guns were pointed down, they were all pointed down at the kids. Uh, so it's you know the pervasive uh, you know uh, feeling in society is you know no 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 we have to get you know as tough as we can on these kids like you know kids are lazy and kids you know could uh, get involved with drugs and you know we have to you know uh, basically <laughs> you know oper- have them operate in, in a fascist type of uh, society in order to uh, you know make them you know go on the straight and narrow path. Right, which is, I mean, fundamentally a medieval belief in in virtue and vice. Uh, It's very, very primitive. Um, One of the things that was also, and I I was sort of waiting for this in the film, and I kind of knew that it wasn't going to be there. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Because to me, the the central character of the film was, was missing. And I think it was very important that it was missing. And the central character of the film was a classroom with a teacher and with the children. I mean, it's always astounded me that we're forced to pay for these institutions. In a sense, we're forced to hand our children over to them, but you can't get a camera in to see what's going on. That just seems to me completely bizarre. I mean, it's public. It should be as open as humanly possible. Did you try to get cameras into the classroom? Did you try to negotiate that with any uh, any school districts or principals? Because um, to me, it was kind of surprising. You didn't actually get any, any shots of, of people or kids being taught in a classroom. Oh yeah, all, all the time. I and mean, there is there's an audio tape of this one, you know, that that exists there. This teacher who's, you know, uh, you know, spouting all this abuse about how the kids in the class are stupid and they're, you know, how she she she's entitled to be mean to them and you know, just all, all sorts of unbelievable abuse. Um, but uh, no, no, there was the, the, that actual point was addressed when I uh, one one of the uh, the you know the central students who I followed around this uh, the student in Colorado who was actually you know a student at Columbine, but uh, you know years after you know the uh, you know the, the events that took place there, and uh, he was talking about how uh, you know he, he addressed the whole issue of us trying to get into the classroom, and uh, he said I can't understand why they can't bring cameras in into the school. There are cameras everywhere. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh no, no, we're against cameras unless they're mounted and pointed at the children in the hallways. Right. So, um, yeah, we we certainly tried, I and mean, there were a lot of things that we tried to uh, to do. I spent two years trying to get um, the uh, a pharmaceutical company to uh, you know have have a rep talk to defend um, you know to either either talk to us or just provide us with you know some kind of stock footage that they you know that they must send out to to, to doctors or, or something you know that that advocate and encourage the use of of, of you know Adderall, Ritalin, other you know stimulants. Uh, to uh, to kids and antidepressants, and they they would not uh, they would not talk to us, and, and we certainly didn't present uh, you know our case as if 
as if we were making any kind of uh, statement uh, either way. In fact, we, we tried to, you know, I always try when I, you know, to coerce people to be interviewed, you know, to, to, to express that, you know, that I'm, you know, subtly try to, you know, demonstrate that I'm sympathetic to whatever their cause is. Um, and, well, and, and it would be nice to hear the other side. I mean, obviously, if, if these millions of kids are being medicated, it would be great to hear the, the side that says, you know, here's the science, here's the proof, here's the medicine. And I mean, that would be comforting. And I'm sure you wouldn't deny that. But so you didn't get any access to the pharmaceutical companies who are drugging the kids or to the, the, the actual classrooms. Yeah, the thing that I found actually is 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 generally um, the uh, the case for one side is is always uh, or the other side is typically supported and comes off much better when someone presents an opposing case because there are some cases that are are just very hard to to, to prove and it just really strengthens you know the other side and I certainly didn't want to come across as being propagandistic. I tried really really hard to avoid you know that appearance and and I and to that end I, I documented. Uh, sources, you know, everywhere uh, I could where I thought it was relevant and wouldn't, you know, slow down the pacing of the film. Right. Um, so that was something I was very conscious of. And I had that same issue with No Child Left Behind. Ultimately, uh, that chapter got cut from the film and, you know, eventually it'll be a bonus feature on a DVD. But um, I, I kept going to the Department, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, Department of Education and pleaded with them to provide anyone who, who would talk to uh, me about uh, defending No Child Left Behind. And finally, um, after literally two years of, of pleading with them, they, um, they directed me to um, someone who was uh, the head of a foundation, Excellent Education for Everyone. And 10 minutes in the interview, I, I, you know, I kind of broke protocol and I scratched my head and I was just like, well, you know, I, I'm really confused because the Department of Education said that you, you know, defended No Child Left Behind and here the things you've been saying are, are criticisms. And he said, oh, you won't find anyone you know, who knows anything about No Child Left Behind who will support this. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was a wonderful moment on camera, but it was, it was, it was, you know, just kind of showed how hard it was to, uh, and, and he, he, he agreed with the whole concept of accountability, which was, I guess, you know, this, you know, sort of the spirit of No Child Left Behind and, and how it was that, uh, you know, I guess they, they, they referred us to him, but, um, you know, but it, it just became very troubling on certain issues to try to find, uh, you know, both sides. The other criticism that I've, uh, that's been levied, which I, I think is more ironic than anything, is uh, the fact that uh, I intentionally uh, didn't include any uh, any prescription, that there isn't a, a, a solution that's, that's, that's offered. And, and that was done very intentionally because... Um, for, for a number of reasons, but first and foremost is there, there is no perfect solution, and uh, the problem is uh, with, with human nature is that people are incredibly resistant to change, and if you propose anything, um, there's no perfect solution, and people will find you know, a flaw in it, even if it's a million times better than the current uh, you know, the status quo. Uh, people will reject anything that they can find you know, has, has some kind of minor flaw in it. And, uh, you know, so I, I did definitely didn't want to, you know, go down that path and, and provide fodder for, for that kind of approach. And it's, it's also kind of like, you know, you mentioned about institutions like slavery, uh, the, the abolition of, uh, you know, a, a corrupt institution, uh, even if society can't accommodate the consequences of that, uh, wholly appropriate behavior, uh, doesn't, um, 
uh, it, it require that one not take the appropriate steps. I mean, here it is, you know, uh, it was 150 years or so since, you know, the abolition of slavery, and there's still, you know, social problems uh, as a result of, of that, you know, horrible institution, and yet, uh, you know, no, no rational person would think that that was the wrong thing to do. Right, right. No, that's. Uh, I think that's quite right. And I, I was very, I, I, I was pleased by that choice for what it's worth. Because to me, you, you making a film about education and the purpose of education is not to provide answers, but to stimulate thought. You want to learn how to think, not what to think. So if you'd provided answers, I think that would have been less discomforting for people. And I think the discomfiture is very important when facing something, so that you, your creative juices and your, your solution. <laughs> brain begins to kick into overdrive. Whereas if you give an answer, people would say, I agree or I disagree, but in a sense that would not challenge them to think about the issues. Yeah, well, I think people don't want to think about the issue, and I think I blame and I blame school for that. You know, as a school creates this dependency that you're supposed to be, you know, told all these different things, and and so people aren't prepared to to not be told. Okay, you've you've made these 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 complaints now. Now feed us the solution. You know, right. so we can you know get on and, and and do these things. And it's like no, no, you you know you have to think beyond you know how you've been educated and actually try to come up with creative solutions on your own. Right. Right. I'd like to talk a little bit if you, sorry, go ahead. Oh, the other thing is I, I kind of liken myself to, you know, I'm a, I'm a documentary filmmaker is, is, is you know, my, my profession to be, if I were, you know, doing an examination of how a, uh, a war is being fought and I can, you know, show that, you know, air raids are not going to win the war and more and more air raids are not going to win the war, we need to do something different, you know, and I, and I show conclusively that that's the case. You know, I'm not a general, so I'm not going to be the one to go, you know, to turn to, to say, you know, well, how should the war be won? I, you know, well, you've got other people who, you know, who analyze and do that kind of thing. I'm just here to give you the bad news about, you know, this one particular approach. Right. Just, a nutritionist doesn't cut your food up for you, right? I mean, some part you have to do yourself, right? Yeah. Now... The medication stuff, I mean, it's it's hard to, to talk about it without feeling just this deep sense of, of anger. I mean, that's what I feel about it. Because, of course, there are a number, which we mentioned earlier, are historical precedents to this kind of stuff. Uh, one which may be even more appropriate, which I'm sure you've thought of, is, of course, in the Soviet Union uh, and in other dictatorships, uh, disagreement with the pervading ideology was considered a mental illness that was treated with some pretty brutal medications and incarcerations. Uh, it was a mental illness to, to disagree with those in authority. And it's chilling in a sort of much more enlightened and free country uh, in the West that this paradigm, to an admittedly diluted form, but still being applied to younger and younger people is still there. If you disagree with people in authority, you have a mental ailment that must be treated by drugs which make you less alert, which is, as one of your um, uh, interviewees uh, reports, uh, you know, re results in slower or diminished growth uh, in just about every organ system within the body, including the brain. Uh, I mean, that that is a really uh, unbelievable finding. And uh, I mean, was that something you knew going in? Or was that something you kind of uncovered more and more of? I mean, we've all heard about it, but the, the degree to which it is medically questionable at best and the prevalence of it is really, really quite shocking. Yeah, no, I, I became radicalized in the process of making the film. There were definitely a number of issues that I came in not knowing anything about, and uh, you know, which was which was good. I, I really tried as best as I could to maintain you know journalistic integrity and and objectivity. And as far as the issues with medication, um, I was I was profoundly curious myself to find out why 
there were these massive numbers of, of children on these, these different drugs. And I was willing to accept the possibility that, oh, okay, then, you know, the parents were, um, you know, took all the drugs, you know, these, these, you know, psychedelic drugs in the 60s. Maybe there were some genetic issues, something along those lines. So I, I, I was kind of open to, to any kind of possible, you know, explanation. And what I found was was precisely what you're describing. And it was it was horrific and disturbing. And I, I think it's it's one of the greatest crimes of our, um, you know, era is is what's going on. It's 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 horrific. It's worse than you know. I think worse than the cigarette companies when they knew that uh, nicotine was uh, addictive and didn't uh, you know disclose that information and that it you know was also uh, you know caused cancer. Uh, well, then you could argue that it's even it's much worse because it's being inflicted upon children. Uh, children exactly. don't have the choice that adult smokers have, and adults uh, who smoke are impacting an already existing and developed adult body, whereas this stuff is is impeding the very organic process of growth that leads to uh, adult capacities. Exactly, and 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 this information is 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 you know is is not being you know disclosed, and even if it were disclosed, it's still or or it's being you know it's it's getting out now to some degree, but uh, uh, it's it's certainly being you know uh, kept back. Uh, it's 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 still being given to kids who aren't making the choices for themselves, whether you know the the, the benefits outweigh the risks, and uh, it doesn't seem like there are any benefits either, um, or, or or very you know uh, marginal, uh, if any. Um, um, I don't know. They're, they're, they're questionable, um, but uh, it's it, it's very difficult. I, I um, it, it, it's it, you know that 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 for me was was you know yeah one of, one of the <laughs> the more disturbing uh, things I came across. There, there were there were others, um, but that that was certainly uh, you know among among the hardest to uh, you know to delve into. And the uh, the link. Uh, I'm trying not to give the film away, right? But the link between uh, the the um, the youth violence and these kinds of medication, the sort of explosive shootings that occurred, that are so heavily publicized. Um, I, I'd never heard that link. I mean, there was a lot of. I mean, I've I've studied this stuff quite a bit, and there was a lot in your film that I'd never heard before, which is one of the reasons I wanted to to talk and and help get the word out. But the link between these um, uh, these medications, uh, for want of a better phrase, these drugs. And uh, and uh, extreme youth violence, uh, I, I'd never heard about before. Yeah, well, I, I talked to a number of uh, children and adults uh, who who have been on you know various medications, Prozac and, and others. I think you know a lot of the antidepressants in particular, and uh, they, they told me you know just uh, these these stories of of you know. Uh, both, I guess it was both pleasurable and nightmarish, but they just developed this, this kind of uh, sociopathic response in terms of them feeling completely isolated uh, from, from society. Someone described, you know, just visions of seeing people's heads exploding and, and all, all sorts of amazing, you know, disturbing descriptions that, uh, um, of, of either fantasies or, or senses of, of detachment uh, that, that the drugs induce. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're drugs that are, you know, affecting people's brains and, uh, um, you know, they, they're, they, they're being disseminated in, in ways that are, uh, I, I don't think, you know, very conscientious and, uh, you know, and, and are instead very uh, widespread and it's, it's, it's disturbing. And, and it's, if, if, you know, if if one were to you know see many interviews and discussions with people who are who are on these drugs, or it's uh, you know it's 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 pretty scary. 
Right. And and this is, as we mentioned at the beginning um, of, of our chat, we have this social sanctimoniousness about children. I mean, you, you flip on the nightly news and it's like, you know, here's the common garden implement that can disembowel your children. You know, that there's all this stuff that is constantly being talked about. Oh, there's lead in toys from China. There's BPA in baby bottles. There's all this stuff that's talked about that may be threatening to your children. Of course, the odds of these are completely minuscule if, if they even exist. But something like this where uh, children are being uh, fed very powerful drugs for ailments that appear to be entirely environmental for which no biological basis can be found, which is really for the convenience, if not the outright hostility and brutality of those in authority, and uh, the effects of which have not been studied in the long run, and those that have been studied even the me in the medium run are horrendous in terms of what, what it does to the kids. And uh, you get these problems, uh, whether it's correlational or causal, it's not entirely clear, with this uh, sporadic violence. I mean... I mean, screw the lead in the Chinese toys. Let's get the pro let's get the Prozac and and the other drugs out of the children's systems. And and but I mean, I, I don't know. That's a very topic I get quite passionate about because the children are so fundamentally helpless in in this situation. I mean, they can't go to school if they don't take these drugs. Uh, the the parents who have to work two jobs to make end meets, if they if they even have two jobs anymore, can't take the kids out of school and homeschool them because they don't have the resources. And so it is really just a meat grinder that is. Uh, morally reprehensible, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, you, you just sums it up brilliantly, and that's the tragic thing also, is that the schools won't let the kids, you know, in many schools, I can't say universal, but many schools will not let kids in unless they are, you know, on on these drugs that they've been, you know, prescribed. And the, the prescription process, you know, can, can just be a, you know, 15 minute interview or something. And, and, and often it's, 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 it's done through a referral by, by a teacher who's been taught that, you know, certain types of classroom behavior, you know, is, is indicative of, of a disorder. And then, you know, for the rest of their lives, you know, the, the child who's been given these drugs feels that there, there's something wrong with them, you know, that they're, you know, and, and and that's that's a whole other uh, you know side effect that's not even discussed is 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 you know the mental repercussions of of you know feelings of you know lack of self worth and and uh, uh, you know issues and concerns about you know one's own being. Yeah, the self labeling. There was the 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 boy that you were talking to who said you know well it's just a little bit crazy or something like that and and that's a term that of course he's been given to one degree or another. Uh, based upon this kind of stuff. And it's amazing to me, though not shocking, given what governments as a whole generally do, that, I mean, you, you can't fire someone for being pregnant or black or gay or whatever, but you can fire a kid for refusing to take medication and give him no place to go um, and, and take the money as if he was still there from his parents uh, for refusing to take medication that is objectively harmful and whose benefits are questionable at best. It's, uh, it's, it's the complete disparity. It's like we as adults live in a post-enlightenment era, and the children live in a, in a, a sort of prison society, in a, in a sort of Soviet or medieval guild society. And this is so bizarre because, I mean, babies are incredibly curious, and they, they, they hunger for learning and for knowledge. And I can't teach my daughter new words fast enough. She wants to get into everything and, and explore everything, and she's really passionate about learning about the world. And then we put them into these these sepulchres of the brain and and just rot them with boredom and authority and drugs. And then we want them to pop out and be participative citizens in an enlightened democracy. It's it's completely strange. It's like trying to reassemble a cow after it's gone through a hamburger machine. 
<laughs> no, that's precisely it. The other thing that I get so frustrated about is, uh, you know, when when I bring up these these criticisms of uh, school, people say, "Well, if kids didn't go to school, they they would just stay at home and play video games and watch TV all day long, or or you know, surf the internet, you know, whichever." That that, that and I was like, "No, no, people are naturally curious. It's school that that takes you know that takes an out of them. You know, people want to learn. <laughs> you know." People right. That's like uh, saying if, if this guy who was unjustly imprisoned was taken out of prison, he'd just lie around an eight by 10 cell all day doing nothing. It's like, no, 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 he's doing that because he's in prison. You take him out of prison and the whole equation changes. But but yeah, as but you said, it's babysitting. Overnight. It wouldn't change overnight with the kids that have already been, you know, subjected to, you know, to, to school for a certain period of time. It's hard. You know, they don't quite get that back, you know, right away. So it's not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it really is, 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 is a very destructive influence. Now, you've gotten some great feedback on the film, for which I think you should, you're entirely, uh, it's entirely deserved. Um, uh, how, how's the film been doing? What's new? I mean, I've only read what I've seen on the DVD cover, but uh, uh, how is the film going? Uh, where, where can people see it? Where can they get a hold of it? I really want to make sure that people can, can get a hold of this, uh, this material easily. Well, for the time being, the film is only available at uh, the waronkids.com uh, website, the waronkids.com, and uh, that's because um, I'm waiting for uh, HBO to uh, to come back. They had expressed some interest. I'm supposed to hear something hopefully today uh, from them, and uh, they they won't pick up something that's it, it, it had a run in, in in New York City, but uh, they, they don't want it to be seen in other theaters if they're going to pick it up. So I'm kind of uh, you know waiting for. Uh, affirmation from them. Uh, if not, there there are a number of other venues, uh, both you know, uh, for distributors. And, you know, so it, it, it will it will you know be be out in in, in a big way come uh, early next year if uh, uh, if, if HBO um, you know drops the ball and, and doesn't run with it. But uh, <laughs> and it makes a great Christmas present for the teenager oh. in your life. <laughs> it's really something that will get a rousing discussion around the turkey table without a doubt. Yeah, uh, definitely he makes a great Christmas present, and uh, and it can arrive, you know, in time for Christmas too. Um, so um, yeah, the war on kids dot com. Plug that, plug that. Um, and and also, sorry, if you if you do get any times, I don't know if you have an email subscription list on the website, but if not, I'll sign up for it if you do, and, and other people can as well. But if you do get a time for airing, if you don't mind shooting me uh, an email, then I'll I'll publicize it uh, through through my venue to make sure that people can watch it on HBO or wherever else it uh, it ends up. Yeah, definitely, definitely will. Um, but yeah, so far I've been, you know, I've been pretty pleased. I've, you know, the, the uh, it, it definitely it's a polarizing film in terms of uh, response, but most of it's been very good. There are a few people that just, you know, uh, one or two people that that just, you know, kind of missed. Maybe one, one person that just didn't understand. <laughs> well, no. See, if everybody understands it, then you're aiming too low. If if a certain segment of people are not pissed off and irritated, confused, baffled, and annoyed by what you're doing, then you're just you're just not aiming at the right place. If you capture everyone, then you're missing the important people, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. The people who have been, you know, I've done a number of showings at schools. Uh, a number of universities have uh, uh, have have shown the film and, and invited me to uh, to speak. And the the the, uh, the students absolutely go wild. They they love it because you know this this repressed collective psyche is finally you know being expressed. Uh, so so there's some there's a lot of excitement there. Uh, the, the, the administrators at schools have been uh, very respectful, but teachers are the ones that, that tend to be uh, the most threatened. I, I think it inspires some kind of existential crisis of sorts. 
Um, and uh, I, I certainly you know, try to console them uh, as best as I can, and I'm not trying to attack teachers, um, but uh, rather, you know, again, the institution, but it's, it, it becomes very personal for, for many teachers. Oh, absolutely, because there is also the myth of teacher virtue, which is really upheld in society. And so if you've based your identity on that kind of collective appearance of virtue, and then that's called into question, not in a personal, but in an institutional way, I mean, that can be quite disorienting for people, for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. Well, I'm trying to keep my interviews, uh, particularly with filmmakers, shorter than the actual films themselves, because that just seems a little okay. ridiculous otherwise. Is there anything else that you'd like to add uh, or projects that you've got coming up next? I know after a seven year, uh, you know, head pounding stretch of, of labor, it might be time to take a break. But do you have any thoughts uh, about what you might be up to next? Um, yeah, actually, I'm I'm, <laughs> I, I'm I'm way too busy for my own good. I'm, I'm uh, editing two other films and in production on a third. Uh, wow. I uh, they're um, happier projects, I guess, uh, by and large for the most part. The two that I'm editing, one is uh, a documentary on a uh, tribe in Uganda that no one has seen for 40 years, and. Uh, they had been uh, severely maligned by an anthropologist uh, who had written a book about them that's read in pretty much all the uh, Anthro 101 classes in college and also a bunch of sociology classes. And so I decided to try to track them down and, uh, and film that. Uh, another one is about a tribe in Vanuatu that worships America. Um, and that's a very interesting film. That worships was- America? Uh, go on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, um, but for the right reasons. Um, so that's kind of amazing too. Uh, it, it's actually it, it's it's a nice piece. It's you know the Americans, uh, you know, it was uh, had, had been on the island during World War Two. Oh, this is the, sorry to interrupt. This is the cargo cult uh, that uh, I think Hitchens writes about in his uh, God Is Not Great book. Uh, quite possibly, they they seem to come up a lot in different uh, um, in, in different texts. I I, I know. Um, was it Dawkins once referred to them in, in, in one of his lectures? Yeah, it's about a format. They, he talks about it in terms of the formation of a religion, that they've they've built up the control towers out of bamboo and they believe the planes are coming back with gifts or something. Again, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's yeah, yeah, that would be... Oh, uh, that's um, a great. I would love to, uh, I'd love to see more of that. So uh, I think that, that yeah, would be... Yeah, yeah. So, so they actually, so they actually like America for the right reasons. The, the American soldiers that were there, um, uh, the military behaved virtuously and upheld the the ideals of, of, of America as, as we, you know, present them. Um, so it's actually pretty heartwarming and, uh, and, and that persisted even after the war in terms of defending, uh, the natives practices from, uh, from, from the European colonialists who still wanted to, uh, to crush their native culture. We, you know, the, the America stood, you know, stood by the, the, the natives and, and, you know, defended, uh, their, their practices and enabled, you know, them to, yeah, you know, to, to live freely in that way, and so they, uh, you know, they have this this amazing admiration and respect for for America again for the right reasons. So so it's that's kind of a nice film, and then I'm in production right now on a documentary about Gilgan's Island. <laughs> Um, yeah, see, I, I knew that was going to be the next topic. I mean, that just follows so logically from the previous two. Yeah, what? <laughs> Well, Go on. Island, I, I, I present it as, as being um, one of the most radical uh, programs ever on television. It aired uh, from 1964 to 66. Uh, the, the pilot was filmed you know, shortly after the Cuban Missile Crisis when uh, American-Soviet tensions you know, really uh, peaked. And here the uh, show presents seven Americans living in this uh, ideal communist paradise. 
and presents oh. communism as, as just the happiest and, and best form of society. And in fact, most of the conflicts of, of each episode occurs when some vestige of capitalism threatens to disrupt the society and it has to be overcome, you know, with the return to, to communism where everyone can, can then be, you know, content and happy and peaceful. That's right. And and what was the color of Gilligan's shirt in every episode? <laughs> uh, it's all coming clear to me now. That's why it's his island. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of it's kind of interesting. And I've, I've spoken with uh, Don Wells and um, Sherwood Schwartz and Russell Johnson and uh, uh, just had an interview yesterday with uh, a professor at Harvard to discuss a little bit about uh, about the background and uh so if that one's you know come along too. That's interesting. Yeah, it's sort of like the mirror image of the um, centrally controlled fascistic military universe of Star Trek. You have the sort of hippy dippy uh, hate Ashbury on a uh, beach world of uh, of Gilligan's Island. That that sounds like a very enjoyable project to work on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, and and they, they've been kind of you know fascinated to to, to see that approach there. You know, uh, and it's been really enjoyable you know interviewing them. Uh, you know, the actors and creator of the show. Um, yeah, and uh, that's that's been kind of a fun project. Yeah, certainly, certainly after the intensity of this one, and and there will be a sequel to to the War on Kids. Uh, the War on Kids was at one point, you know, going to be like this Ken Burns ten part project because it wasn't so much just about school. Uh, the, the really the, the point is the reason why it's the War on Kids was really to show all aspects of of how uh, kids are uh, an underclass in American society. And as bad as things are in school, I've got some really horrific things to report in the Warren Kids Part Two. Um, <laughs> that is uh, that is really mind blowing and disturbing. Um, you know, particularly with, with religious reform schools. Uh, that oh, was, yeah. Uh, you know, quite the worst nightmare. And and uh, I'm amazed at how few people know about this and. Uh, uh, how how brutally those places are run, and uh, there are three states that they are able to, you know, that they prom- predominantly thrive in because there there are various laws that protect them, and that's uh, Utah, Missouri, and Florida, and huh. um, they, uh, you know, the things that they subject the kids to is is uh, absolutely uh, just horrific and disturbing, and. Uh, you know, I, I can't say enough bad things about the people that run those places and, you know, what, what should be done to them. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, uh, I get, um, I, I take a very strong stand against superstition. I mean, which is the technical term for religion. And, uh, I, I can always get these emails from people who are like, Oh, it's not such a big force. You know, nobody I know is fundamentalist and so on. And it's like, well, yeah, if you stay inside your, you know, pretty well-educated, mostly secular uh, urban environment, then you don't particularly see it. But uh, you got to cast your net a little bit wider to see uh, the people who are out there, particularly the children, of who, again, of course, have no uh, particular say in, in this kind of environment. Uh, you know, the fundamentalist religion is a very strong and powerful force. And uh, in many, many places in the world, it's, uh, it's growing in vehemence and intensity. And, you know, the, the dark age is not a good thing when you have nuclear weapons. So we do need to take that stand against this uh, encroach uh, of uh, superstition. So I look forward to that uh, that segment of the film with uh, with great interest. Yeah, yeah, that's that's going to be tough to stomach. I mean, if you thought the things, you know, if you thought the visuals in War on Kids was bad, I mean, mm-hmm. unfortunately, getting visuals for this is um, is going to be really, really challenging. I don't know how, but uh, but the stories are are just devastating. 
I believe it. Well, listen, I really do appreciate and applaud your courage in tackling these topics. Uh, I hope that the film can get as wide a distribution as possible. And I hope it provokes some fun. Like, I hope as a, as a society, we can just find enough love in our hearts for children as a whole to to change the environment that they're in because uh, it, you know most of the world's problems come down to a in my opinion come down to a fundamental lack of love and if we love uh, children enough in the abstract and in particular then we will stop at stop at nothing to improve the quality of their environments and if we don't then uh, the way the world goes will not be pretty and we won't really have many excuses for uh, how how those children turn out and the perspectives and opinions that they have of us. So I hope that your film uh, helps people to see the suffering of this this terrible underclass uh, who are our future citizens and leaders and that we can turn turn the tide to something much more beneficial and gentle and positive and child-centered so the child has a say, the child has rights. Uh, I just really, really applaud and was very excited to, to, to uh, hear about the film and even more excited to see it. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing and a huge, huge recommendation uh, to anybody who hears this uh, to, uh, to just go to the War on Kids dot com and uh, you know cough up your last shekel to get this film it's well well worth it well, well thank you very much i appreciate that <laughs> all right take care best of luck with your next projects thank you so much bye